Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks. I'm journalist Markham Hislop. This podcast is all about interesting conversations with energy and climate experts from around the world. And don't forget to follow us on social media, on Twitter, at E-N-E-R-G-I Media, and my personal handle, at PoliticalHam, on Facebook, facebook.com slash energymedia. Energy.media is our website, where you'll find Markham and Energy columns, news stories and op-eds, and the Energy Student Resources Portal, a wiki-style collection of our work that's free for high school teachers and university professors to use in their classrooms. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. In this episode, we're going to talk about disruption and innovation, and we're going to do it at, you know, sort of the big picture level. And I'm going to be talking to Dr. Werner Antweiler, who is a director, Souter School of Business Prediction Markets, Associate Professor and Chair the Strategy and Business Economics Division, and Chair in the International Trade Policy at the University of British Columbia. So welcome to the interview, Werner. Hello, Markham. It's a pleasure talking to you today. Well, I'm really excited about this because in my journalism, I do hundreds and well, in the last couple of years, we've done just, you know, well over a thousand of just Zoom video interviews. So we've talked to a lot of experts, economists, executives, and so on. And for my readers and viewers, what I try to do is put structure around that because it can seem very chaotic. I mean, you know, uh, changes in technology, changes in, well, in energy technology across many sectors, across, you know, different economies and so on. It's, it's, it really can seem like chaotic. So we try to put structure to help people understand. And I use S curves a lot because that explains the, the development and the move into a market of uh, an individual technology. But at the bigger picture, uh, I've recently come across uh, Joseph uh, Schumpeter's work around creative destruction and long waves of innovation. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. So maybe we could just start this conversation with an explanation of Schumpeter's work. Yeah, so the key idea behind it is that uh, innovation uh, comes in waves. And uh, we've already seen five of those waves. Uh, arguably, we're at the beginning of a new wave of innovation. And um, uh, what they have in common is that it isn't a single innovation that is driving that wave, but it's multiple innovations coming together. For example, uh, when we uh, introduced electricity uh, into the economy on a larger scale, uh, that wasn't the only innovation that was happening at the same time, but it was an enabler. Suddenly, with electricity, you could run certain types of machinery that previously you could not. Uh, much more flexibly, you could produce goods uh, where you could uh, get a power line uh, to run an electric motor. And so suddenly, we had a lot of industries developing that previously only could rely on a, on a very bulky steam engine rather than a compact electric motor. And so when we are looking at uh, innovation uh, cycles, uh, we're never looking at one innovation alone. Maybe there's a key innovation. That's sort of the, uh, the one that's, that's triggering a lot of other things. That's sort of the, the focal point. But it's uh, a whole lot of other innovations that have been um, in the fringes but haven't found an application yet. But they rely on the uh, coming into being of this major other innovation that drives the uptake. And uh, so we're looking at complementarities in innovation, innovations that work together and that can only be useful together. Think about it in a very practical way uh, as complementarities. So for example, when you're looking at um, um, uh, television screens, 
Well, um, if somebody invented a television screen, that's nice, but he can't really use it without content to actually get on it, which is a broadcaster, which is you know, somebody who maybe converts movies to a broadcasting format or, or a way it can be streamed today. So we need complementary technologies to make things useful because in isolation, a TV screen isn't useful. And maybe uh, a movie um, that's uh, recorded but can't be shown to anyone because there is no projector or there is no uh, no television screen is uh, not very useful either. So we need ways um, how uh, how innovations are combined to make them useful, and that is what we have seen in these innovation cycles where. Uh, there was a constellation of innovations that individually weren't very useful, but in combination, they triggered a revolution, uh, the industrial revolution to start with, and now, of course, more than that. Let's go through some of these waves. And this is just as a brief overview and context for, for listeners. The first wave began in 1785, Industrial Revolution. We've got water power, textiles, iron. Second wave started in 1845, steam power, rail, and steel. Third wave, you mentioned uh, electricity, chemicals, and the internal combustion engine began in 1900. The fourth wave, uh, petrochemicals, electronics, and aviation started in 1950. The fifth wave, uh, which you're arguably, arguably maybe still in, began in 1990, digital network software, new media. And then you were talking about arguably we're in a sixth wave now, which uh, artificial intelligence, internet of things, uh, robots and drones and clean tech and, and so on. So how, uh, how is it that we move from one wave to, an, to another? What, what is the thing that triggers the new wave? Yeah, so whenever we see a wave starting, there needs to be a core innovation that is really breaking new ground that enables these other innovations that maybe have already been on the books that have been patented, but can't be used yet because they're missing something central. And uh, at the core of many of the innovations in the past uh, was actually an energy transformation. So energy has a, played a very fundamental role. Uh, for example, when we shifted from steam to coal, uh, from coal to oil, uh, and now we see uh, uh, in, in recent years, a move towards uh, renewable energy. And with each of these very foundational innovations, we see uh, a lot of other things coming along uh, that can be used as well. Uh, and it triggers a wave of uh, uh, new, new innovations because once the door is open, for example, to uh, integrating renewable energy into the grid, we see a rapid innovation uh, in solar panels, wind power, uh, and, and a whole host of other technologies that all uh, rely on that. Um, so when we go back in time, I mentioned electricity um, uh, and uh, the, the petrochemical industry is a very important one to mention here too, because pharmaceuticals are based on petrochemicals. And so the entire revolution in plastics um, and uh, the applications that uh, surround uh, petrochemical materials has been foundational in all the kind of things that we use. Uh, we're using plastics anywhere. We look around your office, look around uh, anywhere we, uh, uh, we are. We're using um, petrochemical materials uh, that are still very central, but we don't realize that petrochemicals because they're made from plastics, which of course come from petrochemicals. Now, I, I want to run an idea past you that occurs to me, and, and I'm looking at the, I have a, a graph here uh, outlining the, the waves, and they're all getting shorter. And, the, and I'm wondering if one of the reasons for that is that each wave builds up a stock of technologies, of science, of engineering understanding, of capital, of labor expertise, education, all of these things, which then form the foundation for the next wave. 
And if each wave is better or bigger and smarter and, and more technical than the wave that came before it, that means that you're basically, you're setting up this, this incremental improvement over time, which, and so your stock of intellectual capital and patents and all of that gets bigger and bigger and bigger all the time, which makes things happen faster. That, that's my journalist's uh, inexpert way of explaining it. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I can I'll put a little bit more economics on it. Um, what we actually see a human capital stock uh, building up. Also, there are more people on the planet who are all very innovative. And so we see that um, there has been an acceleration in innovation because there are more researchers who are trained to do research. And uh, so innovation is happening. Uh, it also becomes more difficult. And so the fact that we are seeing more researchers, well, they also work on more complex problems today uh, that requires more resources, more, uh, more effort. So that said, so there are other effects, uh, namely uh, technological diffusion is happening also through international trade. And through globalization, we have seen that in every corner of the planet, we see now new applications emerging in environments that they're most suitable to. Uh, and uh, so this technological diffusion is helping accelerate some of these waves because uh, uh, there's, uh, there's more knowledge transferring. Um, it's um, um, basically enabling other places in the world to, to work on these innovations uh, also, uh, not just maybe uh, where they came from in the past, which was a very small cluster of places that were carrying out uh, these types of key innovation. That said, there are certain areas that remain very clustered in terms of innovation. Um, economists call those agglomeration economies. Um, for example, everybody is a way of Silicon Valley. And the effect it has that by having a lot of companies and people in one place, um, that can concentrate the process uh, and, and lead to, to benefits uh, in accelerating the innovation that's happening in this place. But this agglomeration effect is now not only reserved to Silicon Valley, we see it in many other places as well. And, and that is very conducive to uh, fostering uh, more focused innovation in certain areas. I want to talk about the S-curve now, because we've been talking about technologies and agglomeration economies, economics, and all of that. And so uh, an S-curve, you, you can plot the progress of an individual technology. And I like to divide the, the S-curve into three sections. We'll see if you, this makes sense to you. The first one is the gestation period. So the 20, 30, 40 years uh, it takes and a new technology is introduced and then it's, it's inefficient. It doesn't provide much value. It can't compete, but there's enough promise there that it keeps the, the uh, innovators keep uh, beavering away at it and making it better and better and better. And after 20, 30, 40 years, it gets, it is competitive. Then it is a market and it begins to push out the dominant technologies. And that's what I call a period of disruption. So a, a decade ish uh, where where the, the new technology is competing vigorously with the and disrupting business models, disrupting markets and so on. Eventually the new technology, if it has value, wins out. And then it, it goes under, it go, goes through a slower period of growth where basically it, it pushes the old technology out completely and becomes the new dominant technology. Does that kind of a model make sense to you? Yes, S-curves we have witnessed in many industries in the past, and there is a lot of empirical research that says, yeah, this is how it works. There is usually a slow phase of tinkering with uh, demonstration technologies, but they're not quite ready uh, for prime time. They're not competitive. Uh, they're not at that point where they're cost effective yet. Uh, we started out uh, talking about solar power. Uh, I can think of it when I was a kid. And of course, it really didn't take off because solar power was uh, enormously expensive in the 1970s. 
Today, we're looking uh, 50 years later, um, it's a, a very different technology that has mature and we see rapid uptake because it has reached this point of being cost competitive. And so suddenly it starts displacing a lot of things. The same way oil did displace coal and then natural gas did displace other things uh, in, in the energy market. So we see it's driven by the market. The market needs to find it's cheaper. And the moment it's cheaper, uh, we see gigantic uptake because it starts to displace the older, more expensive technology. But eventually it reaches also a level of maturity where we're, we're reaching technological frontiers where the technology, uh, we can't really push past physical limits. For example, uh, Moore's law for semiconductors pushes us closer and closer to physical limits where you can't make microchips um, denser and denser when you get to the limits of a single atom. Uh, you cannot have a, a, a connection that's uh, less than one atom thick. So there is a natural limit to how fast and far we can go uh, with certain technologies. And that is when we see the S-curve uh, slowing down. So the economics behind it is very sound. It's driven by the market in the end. Uh, that means we, we like to adopt what is cheaper and better. And that is exactly what we have seen with so many revolutions in technology. I want to talk about some of the... Um... Uh, technologies that are disrupting the current uh, global energy system, as well as related uh, sectors like transportation and and um, trying to think of the industry, we'll say. But so the lithium-ion battery was introduced in 1991. Commercial solar panels, late 1970s. Commercial wind turbines in the 80s. Hydrogen fuel cells, late 80s. Uh, the first, um, I guess, concept uh, car, the concept EV, uh, 1990 with GM building heat pumps, 1970s. My point here, uh, Werner, it, these are all foundational technologies uh, in our in this particular wave, and in the energy transition, and they all have deep roots. They've all been gestating for 30, 40, or or, or more years, and I guess we really shouldn't be surprised that now they and other technologies are suddenly, they appear to have come out of nowhere to be competitive, but in fact, that's not true. They're not an overnight success, are they? Not at all, you're quite right. Uh, many of these technologies are already on the drawing board in uh, various uh, research labs uh, where technologies of the future are being developed. Uh, they're, they're not ready for commercialization at this point. They're sometimes missing pieces, but they're already there. and. Um, uh, sometimes it needs to push an external factor that drives demand to the point where um, it, uh, it leads to early adoption. And then people see, actually, it's, it's solving a, a very important problem and it leads to uptake. Sometimes it's governments that have been helping uh, things along through subsidies, but uh, that is more uh, a novel phenomenon that hasn't really happened so much in the past. Um, but um, uh, sometimes it's been a military necessity that has uh, led to certain um, innovations like rocket technology, for example. Uh, but we, we see uh, that um, technologies always need to find a market in the end. And uh, even though they may exist in a lab, uh, but it needs that, um, that scaling up uh, that really takes things out of a lab um, uh, from, from this, um, now it works in the laboratory to something that works in a, a commercially scaled up version that is competitive in the marketplace. And this is a critical step, this commercialization phase where um, heat pumps aren't something that, that is uh, useful in theory, uh, but it's something that, you know, like for example, I have put in my home to, to heat my home and cool my home. Um, the, um, the, the point at which it um, became feasible to do that 
uh, was reached when it became cost effective, but also provided uh, additional value. For example, it's getting hotter and hotter in a lot of places in the world, and we need more air conditioning and cooling. So heat pumps are actually quite good for this because they're very energy efficient in achieving this. Uh, but it's not just that they're now solving my heating problem, making it cheaper, but they're also solving a new problem, which is cooling my home. So it's this combination of a changing world that sometimes leads to uh, these technologies coming into the forefront because of necessities. I want to talk about disruption within uh, uh, particular industries. And I, I was reading about Kodak, Eastman Kodak the other day, and they're generally, uh, with, along with Blockbuster, they're advanced as an example of a firm that was disrupted by a technology that they didn't see coming. And, but in fact, what fascinated me about, about Kodak is they did see it coming. They had the first digital camera uh, themselves in, in 1975. Uh, now they were slow because they, they wanted to protect the profitable film industry that or film business that they had. But nevertheless, in the 1990s, when it became obvious that digital cameras were here to stay, they did all sorts of things like make, you know, docking stations for cameras. So it made it easier to get in photos into computers. And they had little picture frames that you could, you know, zap photos over to and that. Sort of, but here's the, here's the question for you, Werner. They, they, their response to a disruptive technology was to innovate within their own, their old business model. And the, you know, the disruptive technology required a new business model, which eventually has turned out to be the smartphone. I mean, the smartphone literally killed the point and shoot and all these other digital cameras. And it's the, it's the response. And I'm thinking here primarily of oil and gas, just as an example. You look in Canada, the response of the oil and gas industry to disruptive technologies, basically the automakers choosing electricity over petroleum and gasoline and diesel, and their, their response to it has been to innovate with what they already know, to reduce their production costs, to reduce their, their greenhouse gas emissions. But when electricity in the form of electric vehicles comes for their market, that's not good enough. Is that a reasonable take on disruption within no, a sector? Businesses have a natural tendency to do what they do well. And when disruptions come along, they uh, fight a defensive battle often because they think, okay, if we only reduce our cost more, we stay competitive. But they fail to see that the disruption is much deeper. And that there's a, a turning point, a point of no return where the industry model, the business model underlying everything is changing. And where, uh, for example, you're looking at electrification of mobility, that is a game changer. If I don't put the gas in my tank anymore, but I require electricity, uh, then suddenly my car becomes something very different. It changes in part the business model of the, the car manufacturers to some extent, because well, they have to change uh, all the cap human capital they have invested into developing uh, gasoline and diesel engines is kind of gone to waste. And now they have to develop uh, other components. But when it comes to the oil industry, um, then uh, they, they face the same dilemma as the coal industry in the past that were pushed aside by a new energy source. Um, and so these disruptions are very fundamental and the, the smart companies reinvent themselves. They, they see themselves, for example, no longer as oil companies, but as energy companies. Um, uh, the, the Norwegian state-owned company uh, used to be Stat Oil and they have reinvented themselves and say, well, we're gonna look past oil. We know we're gonna be running out of oil in Norway and we're gonna look past this. We're going to be an energy company. And, uh, and, and so if uh, you, look at the companies that have achieved longevity, uh, 
companies like IBM, for example, they have been around, but they have changed their business model how many times to survive. And it's all the companies that are willing to abandon their old business model and look at the evolving market and, um, and reinvent themselves. These are the ones that survive and um, they, they will persist because they focus on innovation, on the world that's changing around them, and they're on top of that process and not uh, falling behind. And that's the problem that many companies will face. There's institutional inertia that keeps them on that track they have been on that has been profitable. And it's the old guards fighting a battle against the new guard in the company. And often the old guard is winning because they have the levers of power. Yeah, that's right. There is there's a fair amount of, of inertia. And if you take, again, just the case of the oil and gas CEOs, these are public companies. And it, it's not in the CEO's short-term best interest to say, oh my goodness, uh, our industry is being disrupted, uh, our markets are being disrupted, and maybe you know, as early as maybe 10 years down the road, uh, we may not have a market. And what would that do to their stock price? What would it do to the board's view of the CEO? So there's a lot of inertia in there. And I, I was interviewing Colin McCarricker from the Bloomberg uh, NEF about their new EV outlook. And they, for the first time, they modeled the effect of electrification of transportation on global oil demand. And even if we didn't do anything else in terms of policy, no, no new, more, uh, you know, more aggressive uh, climate policy, uh, oil consumption begins to decline in, in 2030 and drops by 25 million barrels a day, basically 25% of, of production by 2050. And that would disrupt the oil and gas, it would disrupt the, the oil industry globally. That is quite right. Um, many of the car manufacturers are now looking at uh, these changes. Some of the smarter companies have embraced electrification and said, so, like, we don't want to be the, at the end of this game of change. We want to be the front runners. Uh, and that actually sometimes had a positive impact on, on their stock price. For example, Volkswagen, after their scandals with uh, the Dieselgate, uh, they realized now we've got to really make a change and, um, and uh, be at the forefront of environmental responsibility. And they have adopted electrification wholesale. Uh, and uh, they're accelerating this internally. Uh, the, the investors are looking at this favorably and saying, well, yes, this is where things are going. So we are um, um, uh, behind this and um, the CEO finds support. But other companies are still dragging their feet on this and, and sticking it to a more traditional business model because it's still paying. Now, in terms of um, oil demand, um, here is the interesting part about EVs. Uh, when EVs become cheaper than gasoline cars, and we're getting to that point, this parity point, very, very quickly. The moment it's cheaper, and most people would want to switch because it's cheaper. And on top of that, it's cheaper to drive electricity than, than, uh, than a very expensive fuel uh, by, by a significant margin. Um, so the, the cost will drive adoption. And then you will find very quickly that the demand for oil will diminish. Um, the, the oil industry will not invest in new exploration. And um, that will have some very interesting effects on what happens to the oil industry. But the bottom line is, um, people will always want to, you know, drive what is effect effectively cheaper and better. Just to wrap up this conversation, Werner, uh, the thinking I th I believe is that uh, the sixth wave we're about five or ten years into it. It'll be twenty five or thirty years long. Does that mean that we should anticipate that in the either it's already started or in the very near future we're going to see massive disruptions across various sectors like? 
like you know electricity uh transportation and so on that disruption is really going to increase significantly i believe so because we're already seeing it clearly happening with electrification of mobility that is one of the major game changers in terms of transportation uh, we're also looking at ai at the same time the connectedness of things that is really disrupting uh, a lot of things uh, that we operate uh, from smart grids uh, to the smart uh, appliances uh, to smart cars and self-driving cars. Uh, so we see uh, a significant potential uh, for the disruption in the 2020s. Uh, I, I fully expect that by the end of this decade, we are looking at uh, a world that is changing significantly around us because we are looking at the second age of electrification. Werner, thank you very much for this. This has been been fascinating, and I hope uh, listeners uh, benefited from this. Uh, you know, our attempt to put some structure around this and provide some insight into innovation and disruption. Thank you very much. It's been my pleasure talking to you. Thank you.